Wow. My grandson's three. He would say, that's scary, Papa. And uh, we're beginning a new series this weekend. We're calling The Great Paradox, Finding Happiness in the Strangest Places. And the series is based on the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5. And since we're going to talk about the great paradox, I thought we probably should make sure we're all on the same page. We understand what a paradox is. It's not an oxymoron. What is a paradox? And let me just give you a, a definition. A paradox is a statement or comment that con contains conflicting ideas. So you make a statement, you make a comment, it has kind of a conflicting idea in there. It, it's considered a paradox. I'll give you some examples. Nobody goes to that restaurant. It's too crowded. Well, that's a paradox. Obviously, somebody's going if, if it's too crowded to go to. Here's one. If you get this message, call me. If you don't get it, don't bother. Now, what's embarrassing about that, many of us have left that message, right? It's a paradox. Here's one. Don't go near the water until you've learned to swim. Well, how do you learn to swim if you don't go near the water? It's a paradox. Uh, this one's self-explanatory. I played football at Duke. Okay, okay. I hear all the Carolina fans clapping. So here's one for you. I received my education at Carolina. Again, a paradox is an example of a conflicting idea. But as we're going to discover in this series, the Beatitudes may be the most paradoxical statements that have ever been made. By the way, since we're getting into this series, understand that the, the Beatitudes are actually the introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Did you know that? I mean, like, I'm, this weekend's an introduction to this entire series. So when Jesus began, the Sermon on the Mount uh, recorded for us, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. The Beatitudes are like the introduction. And by the way, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the first ever recorded message of Jesus. Now, we don't know if it's the first message Jesus ever gave, but it's the first one that the Holy Spirit said, let's record this one, okay? Maybe the other ones weren't up to par. I don't know. It's hard to believe Jesus couldn't preach a good message. But this is the one that the Holy Spirit says, we're going to record and this is going to be saved for all time. And understand, the theme of that message, the Sermon on the Mount, was basically this. Jesus was saying to the crowd that gathered that day, there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new sheriff in town. And I'm bringing a new message with me. Because this is the message. This is what he was saying to the crowd. This is the message you're used to. You're, you're used to the message of the law, the curse that goes with the law. You're used to the old system where it says when you sinned, you had to get an animal, find a priest, a priest that would offer up that sacrifice on your behalf to God, and at that moment you were cleansed and your sins were forgiven until you sinned again. In fact, you could go in the morning and, and offer up a sacrifice for your sins, and probably by the time you went to bed that evening, you were thinking, I better get up in the morning and get a sacrifice, because once again, there was this breakdown between you and God. That's the old system. That's the old curse. Jesus says, I am coming, and I'm bringing with me a new message. I have a brand new covenant that I'm going to be offering to you, and this new message, this covenant is based on things like love and mercy and grace. What I'm bringing to you is actually going to allow you to be reconciled back to God once and for all so that you can have a relationship with him 24-7 no more animal sacrifices because I'm going to be the once for all sacrifice for all your sins but you've got to accept it Jesus says that's what I'm bringing to you in fact this is what Paul was talking about Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 he said Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law how did he do that well by becoming a curse for us he became the curse in our place. And once and for all, when we accept what he did, it wipes away the curse. By the way, some of you have been around church for a while, and I don't have anything else to motivate you. But uh, you like little trivia stuff, so I'll give you some trivia. If you go to Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, the very last word in the Old Testament is curse. You have 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the book of Matthew, 
The very first word in the very first recorded message of Jesus was blessed. So the Old Testament ends cursed. Jesus says blessed, and that really does kind of sum up the Sermon on the Mount. There's a new sheriff in town, and I'm bringing with me a new message. So let's look at it. If you have your Bible, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5. Let me give you just a little bit of background to bring you up to speed. Uh, in the first century, there was a small group of men who were kind of revered as being the spiritual all-stars of their day. Okay, They were the LeBron James. They were the Tom Brady's of spirituality in the first century. And understand, these men, they set the bar of spiritual expectation really, really, really high. In fact, they set it so high, the average man, the average woman walking around the streets of Palestine, you know, they felt, these guys are out of my league. I could never compete with these guys in the religious arena. And because of this tension, a lot of people in the first century had given up on the religious system of the day. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't that they didn't want to be spiritual. It was just this, this, this system that the religious leaders had established. In their mind, it was just unreachable. It was just so unattainable. Now, against that background, against that backdrop, against that culture, enters Jesus. He's 30 years old. Understand that he is physically indistinguishable from any other man, Jewish man, about his age. Uh, contrary to what you've seen in the pictures and the paintings, he didn't have a halo. He didn't glow at night when his mom tucked him in, right? He blended right in. He came from an average family. He came from a small town. And yet some crazy things, in fact, amazing things started happening when Jesus went public with his ministry at the age of 30. In fact, if you go back just one chapter to Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, it says as Jesus was making his way through Judea and Palestine, it says he healed every kind of sickness. He healed every kind of disease. I mean, Jesus came across people who had never walked in their life. And when Jesus was finished with them, they were walking and running, having the time of their life. Jesus came across people who had never seen the blue of the Galilean, Galilean Sea or, or maybe the golden hue of those Judean mountains, if you've ever been in that area, right? But when Jesus finished with them, they could see it. People who had never heard the sound of a bird when they woke up in the morning, now they're hearing those sounds, right? So there's crazy stuff going on. And as, as the news of all this traveled around, it began to send, I mean, literally huge tidal waves of excitement throughout the area. And it was also about this time that Jesus began to talk about something that the Jewish people were waiting to hear. He began to talk about how he was going to establish a kingdom. But this wasn't going to be just any kingdom. This was going to be God's kingdom. And the offer that Jesus was making to the people is you don't have to wait until you get to heaven to participate in this kingdom. This is a, a kingdom that you can participate in while you're still on earth. So naturally, whenever the people would hear that Jesus was going to speak, out of curiosity, and maybe also, fingers crossed, we could get a free meal, right? Maybe a fish fillet, you know? They would show up and they would listen. But understand, when they showed up to listen to Jesus, they were basically interested in two things. Here's the first one. Jesus, if you're going to establish this kingdom, what's it going to be like? And second, if you're going to establish this kingdom, who actually qualifies to get in? Now, you got to remember, because of the religious leaders of the day, the average person walking around Palestine had already concluded, I can't get in, I can't measure up. But now they're sitting on the hillside, they're listening to Jesus, right? And, and, and they're thinking, now, <laughs> this new kingdom that Jesus is talking about, I could get excited. I could get jacked up about that, right? But yet at the same time, deep down inside, there is this gnawing fear that they just won't be good enough. 
that they could never measure up. I mean, after all, I mean, logically, Jesus' kingdom requirements, they have to be a lot more stringent than the religious leaders of the day, right? And if he really is the son of God, hey, it may be a great kingdom. But it doesn't really matter how great it is if I can't get in. And it was about this time Jesus sat down on the hillside and he began to teach the Sermon on the Mount. And he began with the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. The disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying. Now I want to just stop right there. I want you to, I want you to pretend you've never read this before. Okay. I want you to pretend you've never heard these words in your life. And I want you to see just how absurd it all sounds. Okay. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now you notice that phrase there, be glad. In the Greek it's actually just one word and it means jump for joy. <laughs> jump for joy. In other words, Jesus has the audacity to stand before these people who many of them wonder every day, are, they, are we even going to get a meal to eat? They live in incredible poverty. They're living under the boot of Rome, and he stands in front of them and he says, guys, here, here, let, me, let me share something with you. When somebody lies about you, or somebody gossips about you, or somebody maligns your character, your response should be, just get filled with the Spirit and jump for joy. I mean, just have the time of your life, right? Now, let me just ask you a question. When you were maligned this week, gossiped about, abused, how many of you, that was your response? How many of you just said, whoa! You know, just got all excited about it and jumped for joy. Probably didn't happen, right? Now, I know you've heard all this before. And I think the natural, you know, response is, oh, so ho-hum. Mike, I memorized the Beatitudes when I was six. Can't you take me a little deeper? Isn't there something else in Leviticus we could talk about? But you got to understand, this crowd on the hillside never heard this stuff before. It shocked them. It absolutely blew them away. Because first of all, this is not what the relig religious leaders had taught. This is not your response to abuse. And second, this is certainly not what the world teaches, that when someone abuses you and lies about you and gossips about you and maligns your character, that you jump for joy. I mean, this is a paradox. Again, it's a statement that contains these conflicting ideas. I mean, think about it. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty, those who are being persecuted, those who are meek. I mean, if, if I got up one weekend and that was my message, you, one, you would have me drug tested, then second, you'd have me committed. you think the guy's lost his mind, right? But it gets even more confusing and more complicated when you discover what this word bless means. The Greek word, I like to say Greek words because it makes you guys think I'm educated. But the Greek word is makarios. Uh, the, the root of it is kar. We get our word joy from it. But literally, the word means happy. In many places in the New Testament, it is translated happy. That's what it means. But sometimes it is translated blessed, but it's the same word, makarios. For example, Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, blessed is makarios. Literally, you can say happy are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You know, one of our values here at Hope, one of our goals for all of us as followers of Jesus Christ is live what we learn. And Jesus is just saying, hey, you'll be happy if you do that. As you discover my truths, my principles, my precepts, 
You adopt them into your lifestyle. You change your life accordingly. Jesus says, if you live that way, you're going to be happy. Here's another one, Acts 20, verse 35. It's more blessed to give than receive. Literally what Jesus is saying there, you will be happier if you live a lifestyle of generosity as opposed to living a lifestyle of keeping and hoarding and hanging on to. So when you think about makarios, this is what Jesus is really saying in the Beatitudes. Happy are the poor. Happy are those who are mourning. Happy are the hunger, ha hungry. Happy are those who are thirsty. Happy are those who are being persecuted. And we're thinking happy, and then it's impossible for us to get our arms around that because it's a paradox. It's not, it doesn't jive with our way of thinking. It doesn't make sense. Jive. Anybody use that word in the last 15 years? It doesn't make sense whatsoever. Now, let me just say what the problem is as we get into this series called Finding Happiness in the Strangest Places. Part of the problem is, is we don't really understand what it takes to be genuinely happy. Not in the biblical sense of the word. And I'm going to have to unpack this over a few weeks. It's too much to give you at once. It'll blow your head right off the top of your, your shoulders. You wouldn't even come back. So we're going to have to work through that. But part of the problem, we, we don't know. We don't know what it really takes to be genuinely happy. I mean, so the question... The first one I'd ask you is, where do you think happiness comes from? Where, where do we think happiness comes from? And if I, if I were to ask you that question, you know, grab a, a microphone and go all Ricky Lake, and, you know, come out there in the crowd today, and I said, where do you think happiness comes from? These are the kind of answers I would get. Well, I'd be happy if, I mean, I got a job. I hate my boss. I hate my job. It's like drudge. If I could just get a new job, I'd be happy. If I could get that new car I've always dreamed about, I'd be happy. If we could finally afford that new house so we could put the kids in their own rooms, that would make me happy. If I could finally get that promotion, if I could finally get that raise I know I deserve, then I would be content. I'd never want any more money. Some of you, you might not say this, but this is what you're thinking. If I could just get a divorce, I'd be happy. If I could just get a new wife, I'd be happy. Until you get her. And then she's worse than the one you got rid of. You can't get her back because she's moved on. So you're still not happy. You're just stuck again, right? The problem is the things we think that are going to make us happy, we're going to learn in the Beatitudes, they cannot make us happy. For example, I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you, and do not lie to me because you're in church, okay? Do not lie to me. How many of you, let me, just be honest. Let's just be honest. We can, we can be honest anywhere. It's church. How many of you really, I mean, think this. You think, if I had more money, I'd probably be happier. Let's be honest. Just raise your hands. Oh, look at all the liars around you this morning. We all believe that. That's why we watch the people who win the $365 million Powerball lottery and they look like they just fell off the turnip truck and you think, why couldn't I do that? Because the incredible things I could do. First of all, I would tie 10% to Hope Community Church. God knows you're lying. That's why you're never going to win it to start with, you know? <laughs> you set yourself up for failure. But the reality is we all begin to think, oh, man, think what life would be like. Man, I tell you, I'd never work another day, moving to the Caribbean. I mean, I mean we think that... If we just had more money, we could be happy. You know what I've discovered in 30 years of pastoring and dealing with people with money? Uh, they are some of the unhappiest, most paranoid people you'll ever meet in your life. And two reasons, basically. One, no matter how much they have, never enough. Never enough. And here's the second reason. They are so afraid. They live with this constant fear that somebody either is going to take it or they're going to lose what they do have. By the way, that's why wealthy people aren't generous. They just aren't generous. Statistics bear that out. The wealthiest people in America give the, the, the least amount away to charitable organizations. They don't do it. I'll tell you why. Fear and greed. That's why some of you don't give here at Hope. Every year I get this long list, multiple pages of the people that give at Hope. 
I don't know if it's good or not, but I get it. They put it on my desk, and I can tell who gives the most, and I can tell who gives the widow's might, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, and many of I, I don't even know. But you know what blows my mind? When I look at it, and I people I do know, and I know what they do for a living, and how they barely make ends eat meat, and they are like some of our top givers. But what always blows my mind, really, is the big shots. The fancy cars, the beach houses, the, you know, where are you? And nothing. You're not, I mean, not even on the list. I'll tell you why you're like that. Okay, the rest of you who give, just check out for a second. Um, you're like that because you, you bought into the lie, I need my money to be happy. And if I give it away, I might not be able to replace it, and I won't be as happy. Compare that to my neighbors. I was talking to him last week, and he said, hey, I just got a promotion. And, of course, being a pastor, I said, did that come with a, a raise? You know, and he laughed and he said, yeah, what do you want? And I said, nothing, I just get, but his wife's beaming from ear to ear. She said, it's more we can give away. And then we had a conversation. He said, man, you know what would be cool? I want to take my kids. I want to go to Uganda as a family and maybe the raise we got, we would just pay to actually build a house, a home, a building for, for the kids. And you just, you, they couldn't smile any bigger. It's the one percenters who come up to me and say, hey, Mike, you asked us to give up our giving 1%. We did. I wasn't giving anything. Now I'm giving 1%, big smile on their face. Or I was at 5%, now I'm giving 6% for the kingdom, big smile on their face. One lady came up to me last night grinning ear to ear, and she said, Mike, I up my giving 10%. From what I was give, already giving, I upped at 10%. I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet, but I am so excited to see what God's going to do. Beaming from ear to ear. Now let me just say this. If you're depending on your wealth to make you happy, you ought to be worried. Listen to this proverb, Proverbs 23, 5. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. How picturesque is that? Anybody's 401k done this? Like, oh, man, there it goes. I'm preaching to them 106. You know, uh, you know, that's just what he's saying here. Now, again, the problem isn't having more money or having a lot of money. The problem is when your money has you. Your problem is when you think, okay, this is what I need to be happy. It can't make you happy. And if you don't believe that, just study the life of Solomon. In fact, Solomon is the classic case of telling us what can't make us happy because if anybody had it all Solomon had it all I mean we can't even begin to comprehend how wealthy Solomon was he made Donald Trump look like a punk I'm telling you right now and I promise you Solomon had better hair I know that right now and I've never even seen Solomon but this is what it says in 2nd Chronicles chapter 9 verse 13 the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents now if you do the math that's 1.1 billion in today's market not including the revenue brought in by merchants and traders. In other words, these are just gifts that are given to him. That doesn't even count what he's getting on taxes, so he's loaded. In fact, I, I, I had somebody do the math. By today's standard, Solomon's house costs $3.3 billion with a B dollars. Laura and I recently got to tour a $20 million home in this area. Somebody said, you got to see this home. So they took us and and we walk in, the ceilings are like 50 feet, and they're all painted. And the pool outside, it's got these big rocks and waterfalls. It even has a lane that you can swim into the house. Because anybody with a lot of money, you're not going to lower yourself to get out of the pool outside. You know what I'm saying? You want to be able to swim in and dismount, you know, type thing. Right type thing, you know what I'm saying? I'm telling you, incredible house. Looked like an outhouse beside Solomon's. That's how loaded Solomon's was. Get this. The Bible says, you ought to read some of this stuff. The Bible says he had no silverware in his house. It was all goldware. Forks, spoons, knives, cups, made not of gold-plated, solid gold. Get this verse, 2 Chronicles 9, 27. The king, referring to Solomon, made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. In other words, if you wanted to redo your driveway, you didn't call for concrete. You just threw the silver out there and packed it down a little bit. I mean, that's, that's, he was loaded. Wasn't happy. You know why? 
Money won't make you happy. Now, let's be real. It'll make life easier. Sometimes it will relieve some stress. But if you're looking on money to make you happy, it won't make you happy. I'll tell you what else won't make you happy. I learned this from the life of Solomon. Relationships won't make you happy. I can't tell how many, t- I can't tell how many times I've heard people say, if I could just find the right husband, I'd be happy. If I could just find the right wife, I'd be happy. Let me tell you something. Solomon had hundreds of wives. And he could afford them. You know what I'm saying? And he was miserable. You would think out of hundreds he could find one good one that could make him happy. Nope. I've had people say, if I could just have children. Yeah. Let me know how that works out for you. Okay? (laughs) I mean, if relationships could make you happy, Solomon would have been happy. He wasn't happy. How about wisdom and education? A lot of you college kids, man, you're going after that. Yeah, if I, once I get this degree, and, and, and then when I'm, by the time I'm 50 and I get my student loans paid off, and things are going to be lined up, man, and you're chasing those degrees, more degrees than the thermometer, and you're like, I'm going to get all this wisdom, all this education, and I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be content. Listen to what this says about Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived. 1 Kings 10, 23. Solomon, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. And you hear that and you think, man, that's some pretty heady stuff. I mean, this guy had the world by the tail. His life must have been absolutely incredible. Wealth, women, relationships. He built castles. He built gardens. He he was the first American Idol judge. I mean, it said he he would bring contestants just to sing for him, right? I think he had like thousands of stables, 14,000 horses and chariots. You know how he summed up his life? Read the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, empty. Man, life sucked. And it's because somewhere he figured out that external circumstances cannot bring you real happiness. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, he basically says, man, I had it all. If anybody ever had it all, I've had it all. But when it came to finding happiness, I could not get my arms around it. It was like absolutely chasing the wind. Never got it, never found it. And it's because external circumstances will never lead to happiness, never lead to contentment, never lead to satisfaction. Now, I know you don't believe that. I know you don't believe that. But this is what the Bible says. And it's going to take you a few weeks in this series to really begin to let this soak in. So you're just going to have to hang in here for a while. So if the things that we think make us happy don't make us happy, what makes us happy? You'll be shocked by this answer. Happiness comes from God. I mean, it is church, right? I mean, But that's really what we're going to see in this series. Now, why does happiness come from God? Because happiness is a spiritual need. And you cannot meet a spiritual need with a natural source. So it has to come from God. What does that mean? If you can't meet a spiritual need with a natural source, it means this. There's nothing on this earth that can make you truly happy. There's no one on this earth who can make you truly happy. What we're going to learn in this series is you will only be happy when you have this relationship with God. And not just any kind of relationship with God. I mean, you've got to kind of take it to a whole other level. And that's why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by sharing the Beatitudes because he's talking about now not something that you can do, not your outer actions. He's talking about an inner attitude, an inner attitude. That's why they're called the Beatitudes, not the do-attitudes. Write that down. That's brilliant stuff. You might want to you pass that along if you want to. They're the Beatitudes, not the do-attitudes. Because what we're going to learn, happiness is based on an attitude that comes from being, not doing. You see, the world's logic says, if you do, you'll be. 
if you go to school, if you climb the corporate ladder, if you can amass enough fortune and fame and power, if you can do those things, you will be. Jesus comes along and says, mm -mm, doesn't work that way. If you will be, then you'll do. But that's what Jesus was talking about, that famous passage, John 15, where he's talking about you are the vine, I am the branches, da 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 But this is what he says in verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that includes be happy. And so really, that's the message of the Beatitudes. Jesus was basically announcing to the world, the Messiah is here. Finally, you've been waiting. And the Messiah brings with him life. He brings with him blessing. He brings with him happiness. And you're not going to find it outside of me. By the way, it helps to understand who Jesus was addressing that day. I said earlier, obviously, it was a Jewish audience. But even in the first century, there were four major groups of Judaism. There were the Essenes. There were the Zealots, there were the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Uh, uh, and and what's, I point this out because each one of these groups had their own idea of what it took to be happy. And they were the ones making up Jesus' audience that day. And I want to point him out because I want you to see that nothing's really changed over 2,000 years. You know, we still think we know what it will take to make us happy. The first group was the Essenes. And they believed that happiness came from being isolated from the world. If we can just be away from the world and that evil influence, kind of like communal living. And I will just say this, I didn't grow up in a commune. But that is certainly the mentality of the church and the home that I grew up in. I mean, it was all about being isolated from the world, be separate from the world, which meant we didn't go to places that sinners went, you sinners, you know. We, we didn't, you know, when I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to go to bowling alleys because people smoke in bowling alleys and they drink in bowling alleys. And they, I think girls chew tobacco in bowling alleys. So we, we, we didn't go to bowling alleys. No. And we, we didn't go to movie theaters. You know what I was taught as a kid? You don't go to movies because every dollar you give them to see Snow White, they're making pornography with that money. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. So I never went to a movie until I got married. I married that girl from Southern California. She just drugged me down. <laughs> you know the first movie she took me to? Grease. I was thinking my dad was right. Stay out of those movie theaters. That was horrible. But anyway, didn't go to dances. I told you Baptists think, you know, that's why they're against premarital sex. It may lead to dancing. That's the worst thing in the world, right? <laughs> Only supposed to go to school with other Christian kids. Don't go to school with those public school kids. They'll mess you up, you know. And the thinking was, well, if you're not around sin, you won't sin, right? I can tell you, I, I, I proved that wrong. As much as they isolated me, I proved that wrong, right? Uh, by the way, I don't want to disappoint some of you parents who are spending so much money to put your kids in Christian schools. Just as, so you know, I'm just telling you as a friend, there's just as much sin going on in the Christian school as there is anywhere else in society. And you know why? Because <laughs> your kids are there. That's why. That's why. And wherever we go, we take sin with us. Right? Right? Don't we? Some of you are still looking for the perfect church. If you find it, don't join it. Because you're going to mess it up. Because it's perfect. You're going to take yourself with you. It's going to be a mess. Right? Jesus never said anything about being isolated from the world. In fact, he said the exact opposite. When Jesus was praying what really is the Lord's Prayer and the intercessory prayer in John 17, this is what he said in verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus said, I don't want them to be isolated from the, uh, uh, isolated from the world, but I do want them to be insulated from the impact of the evil one. So, you know, being isolated is not going to make you happy. They thought it would, but it won't. People still think it will today. How about the zealots? They believe that happiness came from power. 
they were always protesting, going up against the government, going up against the authority, going up against the establishment. You know, their thinking was if we can just overthrow the establishment, if we can just get the power, seize the power, if we can just be in charge, uh, we're going to be happy. People still believe that today. In the first century, they called them zealots. Now we call them, you know, Occupy Movement, whatever. But people still think, man, if, if I could just seize the power, I could be happy. No different today. Happiness doesn't come from power. The Sadducees believed that happiness came from just being your own man, doing whatever it was you wanted to do. These were the original, if it feels good, do it. Don't worry about the consequences, just get out there and do it. And they felt that way because they didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in afterlife. They didn't believe in heaven. That's why they were sad, you see. So, so you'll get some of this stuff about two this afternoon. The sad, you see, were sad, you see. They didn't think you went to heaven after. They thought once you died, dirt nap, that was it. And since you only go around once, since you only have this window of time where you're living life, go ahead and live it to the fullest, grab all the gusto you can. That's not original with Budweiser, right? This is an attitude that has been around for thousands of years. Just live for yourself, just live for today. There aren't any consequences, there aren't any rewards. Just get out there and do it. You got a little window of time. Sadducees, that's no different than today. And then the Pharisees believe that happiness came from being perfect based on your performance before God. And the more perfect you are, the more God will like you, the happy you'll be. So don't ever make any mistakes. Don't ever mess up. Talk about setting yourself up for disappointments. Their favorite pastime was sitting around and critiquing everyone who wasn't as perfect as they were. And let's just face it, there's a whole group of people that show up at church every weekend just like that. You know who you are. Nothing's changed. That describes you. You're just a, you're just a modern day Pharisee. So that's Jesus' audience. The Essenes, if I'm isolated, the Zealots, just give me the power. The Sadducees, just live life to the fullest. The Pharisees, I'm just going to be perfect. And Jesus comes along in the Beatitudes and he says, I, just got, I want to just let you understand, none of those things are going to make you happy. Because happiness comes from God. It's not about being isolated. It's not about being in power. It's certainly not about being perfect or just living life any way you want. It comes from God. You live for God, and you're going to be happy. And right now, I can kind of hear the gears in many of your brains going, just kind of grinding to a halt because it, it, it's a paradox. That doesn't make any sense. By the way, one other challenge that Jesus faced when he was delivering this message was this misconception that the audience had about the Messiah. The Jews have been told for centuries, the Messiah is going to show up, and when the Messiah shows up, he's going to set up his kingdom. Understand, they're now living under the boot of Rome. They are absolutely miserable. So they believed that when the Messiah showed up, he was going to immediately establish his kingdom, and that's what was going to make them happy. And if you read the Gospels, that's why the disciples were constantly asking him, hey, when are you going to set up your kingdom? When are you going to set up your kingdom? Are you going to set up your kingdom today? Will it be next Monday? How about next Monday? When are you going to set up your kingdom? And when you set up your kingdom, can I sit on the right or can I sit on the left? What role am I going to play in your cabinet? When's the kingdom going to come, right? In fact, I believe the most devastating statement the disciples ever heard in their lives was when Jesus was being tried before Pilate, and Pilate asked Jesus this question, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response was, my kingdom is not of this earth. And I believe with all my heart that the disciples, and this is where it all fell apart from, they were in the crowd that day. I guarantee you it absolutely devastated them because that's why they've been following this guy for three and a half years. They thought he was going to set up a kingdom, overthrow Rome, and they were going to be happy. This is what Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 20. The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations, nor would people say, here it is, there it is. Why? Because the kingdom of God, here it is, is in you, and therein lies the key to happiness. The kingdom of God is in you. This word kingdom comes from two words, king and dominion. And basically, this is what Jesus is saying. You will be happy when the king has dominion in you. 
you will be happy when the king is sitting on the throne of your life. And when the king is sitting on the throne of your life, it won't matter if you're hungry. It won't matter if you're thirsty. It won't matter if you're poor or persecuted. It won't matter if you're mourning. It's not going uh, to be based on your outside circumstances. You can be happy. You can have peace. You can have joy. You can still be content in the worst circumstances of life because the king's sitting on the throne. So when you boil it all down, this is what Jesus was saying on the hillside. Without me in your life, you do not have a chance at being happy. And I'm glad you're here this weekend. I love it when people come to church, especially people who've never been before. Church won't make you happy. It might make you feel better about yourself for a few weeks, but it won't make you happy. Stick around long enough, we can make you miserable. I can attest to that myself. Your money won't make you happy. Your career won't make you happy. Finding the right spouse won't make you happy. Even living a life of what you consider to be purpose won't make you happy. Until you relinquish the throne and the control of your life to the real king of kings, you won't be happy. I came across this quote, and I'll close with this. Joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts, announcing that the king is in residence today. Today. I've totally surrendered to him today. Tomorrow's another day, but today. So here's my question. Who's really calling the shots in your life? I mean, who's your king? Who's your king?